Jan Jaltasche, and I beat the orphan path by taking action instead of talking about it, which is ironic uh, saying that on a podcast. But uh, <laughs> I think when we talk about uh, planetary issues, that is quite unusual to some degree. Um, I'm the founder and CEO of Cleanup, and we are investing in waste management infrastructure where there is none to keep plastic out of the environment, out of the ocean, and that's what we do. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual success stories to help us see our lives and careers from a broader perspective. My guest today is Joel Tasha, and he's the founder and CEO of CleanHub. CleanHub is a startup that aims to preserve and protect the world's oceans by collecting and managing multi-layer packaging, which is a type of plastic that's almost impossible to recycle using traditional technologies. 80% of the plastic waste that ends up in the oceans is so-called flexible packaging or multi-layer packaging. Think like chip packets or sauce packets like the Taco Bell hot sauce thing. You know the drill. He's raised over 4 million euros for his concept so far, getting the support of many, many big brands in the process. He's recovered hundreds of tons of waste from the ocean, and more importantly, he's built a life and career that brings him satisfaction and joy. So here is Joel Tasha of Clean Hub. Well, welcome to the show, Joel. Now, in case you didn't know, the theme of this show is talking about it and not taking action. That's why I'm here. So I'm the opposite <laughs> of what you're doing. But I deeply admire you for taking action. So maybe tell us a little bit about how you got started, what it is that brought you to this mission, just what is your journey in a small nutshell? Yeah. I can, I can start when I was extremely young because I do believe that it is important. I grew up at Lake Constance, which is the biggest lake in Germany. And usually German kids uh, start playing soccer or football at, at a certain age. And for me, it was sailing. So I was a competitive sailor when, when I was younger and obviously had an amazing and I also have to say privileged childhood. I spent most of my time uh, sailing, um, being in and around the lake and skiing in winter. So I was always out in nature a lot and I appreciate nature a lot, which again is ironic because I now live in Berlin. Um, but it is, I love that it is, city, by the way. Berlin is <laughs> awesome. Berlin is yeah, such a cool city. It is a fun city. But it has no mountains, so no. it's problematic. But, you know, then um, early adolescence came. I, I turned 18, and suddenly so, uh, sailing was not cool enough anymore, and I started to surf. Um, and with that, also traveled quite a bit. Again, quite a privileged life. I was studying, and during my studies, I was always working during the semester so I can take the semester breaks off and kind of spend the money that I that I earned during the semester break and went a lot to South and Southeast Asia, like Indonesia. And already back then, and there was, I don't know, 2012, 13, right? Wherever you would go, you would find plastic. It didn't matter if it was in the ocean when, when you went surfing. It didn't matter if it was on the beach or if you um, climbed the volcano. There was plastic pollution everywhere. And I, I still remember that back in the day, I was even asking the taxi drivers, like, where's all they coming from? Why, why, why is that? There was no clear answer to that. And it continued, right? I um, continued surfing. And by being part of that subculture, you are automatically very much exposed to the, to the topic of plastic pollution quite a bit. Um, then I did my master's degree, 
started a job in B2B SaaS, a fleet management company in, in Switzerland. Um, was one of the early employees there, joined them in the seed stage and stayed until pre-Series B um, and was kind of the, the right hand of the CEO, did a lot of firefighting for him. Um, so I saw the, the entire pain of building a company uh, firsthand, got my first experience. But then again, on a surf trip to, to Portugal, I realized this is not really what I want to do in the next years. Um, fleet management is not really what gets me up in the morning, right? Right, it doesn't motivate you exactly. Not at all. It was not intrinsically motivated. I felt that my learning curve came to a degree that I can try something by myself. And I, I really sat down and on a, on a piece of paper wrote down what are things that are important to me. And for me, there was community, like being surrounded by people that you like. To me, there was being at the ocean, being able to do what I like to do, which was surfing and still is. Um, and at the same time, I felt like I wanted to use this privileged childhood, this privileged adolescence that I had, all the things that I was able to learn to kind of build something that is more important than fleet management. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at all these things, it was obvious to me that probably the biggest adventure that is left for, for, for someone on the planet is to start your own company. And if you combine that with something where you can do good, um, that's that's what I wanted to do. So I took that decision in 2018, spring 2018, quit my job uh, towards December 2018, got initial angel investment from my CEO, from the company. Um, and from there, the, the entire journey started with cleanup. Um, and that is a story in and by itself. That's amazing. Yeah, we're going to get into all of that. I do wonder how many months of personal money did you have saved up at the time that you quit your job? Did you have a little bit of room there or was it really like we have to figure this out immediately? No. Um, again, I I was working in Switzerland, which yeah. is a good place to start your career, I have to say. Um, That's true. They make a lot of money in Switzerland. <laughs> they do. And I did. And um, so I had a personal run rate of around six to eight months plus the angel investment, which gave me a good 12 months. And I'll, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that because on, on the one hand, um, budget was so tight that you still get up with this stomach cramps in the morning. It's like, oh, I need to do oh, something. God, yeah. Next. What are we going to um, do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that, that's the kind of thing that keeps you going. Uh, it is uncomfortable, but it helps. And on the other hand, it gave me enough time to really understand the problem before I came up with a solution. That was um, important for me as well because I wanted to go into circular economy. I wanted to do something in the plastic space. And um, <laughs> contrary to common belief, complex problems don't always have simple solutions. Um, and yeah, I spent the next months basically jumping from conference to conference, from waste management company to waste management company. There were trips, spontaneous trips to Kuwait to meet waste management experts. I went to India, Sri Lanka, um, the Philippines, all over the place. It was a very fun year. Um, I, I felt like an investigative journalist and um, it, it really helped me to understand the, the, the core issues that are at play and to come up with a solution. That's so wonderful. I think a lot of people, if they have an idea, they don't know how to get that idea off the ground. They might want to start something that has impact, but they don't know where to begin. 
How did you start the process of getting that angel investment in the early days? Mm-hmm. Um, it took me three years. Three <laughs> years. From the internship all the way to finally quitting that job. So I built a trusting relationship with uh, the CEO, Andreas Brenner. And, um, we're still really good friends. He's a, he consults me on all big topics, so he's, he's really my mentor. Um, but then these three years led to a one-week decision where he says, like, yeah, sure. Um, I'm <laughs> yeah, sure. I believe that you find a solution for that. Um, so it was a three-year build-up phase for one year uh, for one-week close. Yeah. Um, but then obviously there was a more formal um, investment round in um, in 2020 where we really raised money institutional money as well in our pre-seed and right. later on in our seed round. So did you have the angel investment before you quit your job or after, even though you were working on it for three years? Uh, kind of kind of in between. In between, um, okay. Yeah. So you sort of knew that it was coming. It wasn't a yeah. complete surprise. You said, this is probably going to happen. So you felt yeah. safe that I could yeah. quit my job and at least have something uh, to go with. Yeah, and I, I got that safety from... Also from my from my personal savings, right? Um, in the beginning, so it, it was an entire process, right? I started this thought process in beginning of 2018, and then um, was saving a lot of money until, and again, privileged life, right? If you work in Switzerland, you can save quite some money within a year, um, and um, yeah, so everything was then kind of from the moment where I took the decision that I wanted to do something by myself, that I wanted to start my own company. To the point when I really quit, I, I built all that up. Yeah, that is so cool. And I want to talk a little bit about the problem here. So we all sort of know that plastic is floating in the ocean. We've heard of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. We know that there's an island the size of Texas getting larger all the time of plastic crap floating around in the ocean. But one thing that I noticed from your website was that you make a distinction between the types of plastic. And there's a certain type of plastic that ends up in the ocean most of all. What kind is that? Yeah, from the from the land-based plastic and especially the plastic that uh, enters the oceans in South and Southeast Asia, um, also Africa, Latin America. The, the latest studies um, that we refer to um, state that around 80% of the material that enters the oceans is flexible and multi-layer packaging. So that can, flexible packaging is, for example, if you buy um, tomatoes and they are wrapped in plastic, yeah. um, this flexible packaging. Multi-layer packaging is, for example, your chips bag, uh, for the listeners in the UK, crisps bag, <laughs> <laughs> with the metalized inlay and a plastic outlay you can't get those materials apart anymore in a physical process. So physical recycling, uh, sorry, mechanical recycling is impossible for that material. You can, to some degree, downcycle it. So you can hot press it, for example, into roof tiles or whatever, but you can't really recycle it in the same application, right? And that leads to to a big issue because um, the things that can be recycled, rigid plastics, water bottles, for example, there's a huge informal sector working in India and Indonesia, wherever you go, that collects this type of material because it has an inherent value. Mm-hmm. Right? Like if you buy a T-shirt from any kind of bigger sports brand by now, it will be from recycled water bottles, which actually is downcycling as well. It's not 
true meaning of recycling, but you can turn a water bottle into yarn, into polyester, and then produce clothing out of it. Can you elaborate you on that real it. quick? What is the difference between recycling and downcycling? For me, personally, recycling is really keeping it in the same application, so bottle to bottle. And there the statistics say and I, like, it's around 2% of all plastic that was ever produced really was reused or recycled again in the same application. As soon as you take this material and turn it into something outside of its original application, to me personally, that's, that's downcycling. So if you take a water bottle and produce a park bench out of it, that's a downcycling process because um, it's not used in the same application. And after that thing was a park bench, it's most likely not going to be recycled into anything else again. Um, so it's so one it's more step before it becomes yeah, it's garbage. Degrading. Yeah, it's degrading in quality. Yeah. And um, to some degree, it's fine to do that, right? Because you just take a resource and keep it in circulation longer. You're extending its lifetime. But at some point, everything turns into trash. And then what, what to do with it, right? So an example of true recycling would be taking, to borrow a German thing, a, a bottle of Schwarz beer and <laughs> recycling it for more beer. Or yes. what's the other beer? Rodler beer. Yeah. Those are the two, right? <laughs> <laughs> Passing my German test right now. Um, yeah. And, you know, the industries that are picking it up, um, are, for example, the beverage industry, so you will find quite some water bottles made from recycled plastic. Um, funny enough, it's more difficult to do the same thing for sodas. Um, it's because in, this is what people need to understand, right? Nobody puts packaging on the market to annoy anyone or to say, it's like, I want to harm the environment. But it's because we as consumers also got used to a certain way. And before I say that to any critics listening, I don't believe that it's purely the consumer's fault. I don't believe it's purely the corporate's fault. It's a system error they that go together. We, we have at play. Um, I'm not finger pointing to anyone. This is not helping at all. But I can also speak for myself, right? I got used to a certain level of convenience. I go to the supermarket, I buy the stuff that I want. I want it to last long. And packaging is always designed to protect the content of something. Um, if I produce... Um, I don't know if I if I use packaging for tomatoes. I don't do it just for the sake of making it easy to carry, but it also will mean the tomatoes will last longer. So that means it has extended shelf time, right? It can stay on the shelf for longer, which means ideally less food waste. Because this is the worst thing that can happen, right? If you take all the carbon budget to produce a tomato, farming whatever, put it on the shelf, it rots away. This will <laughs> produce methane. Um, Nobody ate it. This entire work was for nothing. So if it's protected through a layer of packaging and lasts longer and will be consumed, this is from a life cycle analysis perspective better, right? And now I'm not saying we should wrap everything in plastic either, right? It's We need to find the right balance and make packaging in general more circular. But and we're just opening a lot right. of threats. <laughs> would, it, would I be right in saying that generally plastic is very hard to recycle? It's almost always downcycled, if anything. In most applications, yes. Yeah. There, there, there are a few applications where it works better than, than others. For example, in um, yeah detergent. Um, so in the like household cleaning 
um, applications. There you find it quite a lot. In shampoo, you find it quite a lot. Anything that is has to do with food contact is difficult also for hygiene reasons, right? Maintaining the quality of a recycled product is quite difficult. Um, and this is why in, in a lot of countries, actually using recycled plastic in food contact is prohibited. You mm -hmm. can't do that. Interesting. All right, folks, if you have been listening to this show and you have never, ever hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or your podcast platform of choice, please, please, please tap that subscribe button, follow, and better yet, leave a nice review. Help me grow the show. If you support the stories, if you like any of these people, if you've liked any episode at all, please do me that favor. Subscribe. It takes two seconds. Leave a nice review and help me grow this podcast. That's all I ask of you. And now... Back to the show. And the major culprit is, like you said, that metalized plastic or what we have on here in the U.S., Taco Bell, those hot sauce packets, those little packets of prepackaged sauces or whatnot. Those are the things where there's a layer of plastic and something metal. They're combined, they're fused together, so it can't be done. So I think we've done a pretty good job of explaining what the problem is. Now, how did you begin to start thinking about a solution to that problem? Now, um, that that really came to be when we were in in India, um, because I was sitting with a the family there. They are friends of mine, and they own um, some land in in the city where they are. And my friend called me. He was like, "Hey, the the municipality is dumping all that waste on my land, on my agricultural land." In the end, right? Um, can you do something about it? You you are into that topic and so on. And say, like, okay, um, let me let me come to India um, <laughs> and, and check it out with you because I was super curious. And um, we sat down at the dinner table and I was asking him, like, what happens to the waste? You know, what happens to all the stuff that you put in the bag and that you throw out? Like, I don't know. I have no idea where that stuff goes. And so we started following that, that waste bag. And in the end, we, we did end up at the end of the chain in front of that um, of that field in the back country. And we went there at night and it was truly shocking because people just put these illegal landfills on fire in the evening to reduce the waste volumes. I can show you images and videos of that. Please, we'll throw them up on the video right now. Yeah, yeah. we'll put it in the final edit. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely send those too. Um, when in doubt, and, just burn it all. That's been my motto for years. <laughs> when you're not sure what to do, just burn everything. Yeah, and that's that's the motto. And right, everybody's talking about ocean plastic, but the much bigger, or not the much bigger, but there's also a lot of environmental shit. Sorry, happening. No, please. I think I've already said it multiple <laughs> times. <laughs> yeah, you know, burning burning waste openly without any filters, without any kind of control is one of the worst things that you can do because you produce so much damage to the air, to the soil, because you're leaving toxic ashes behind, right? There's heavy metals in, in waste that will trickle down to leach it. I'm not sure you probably never encountered that. Uh, I did. When you forget to bring your waste out, you have this disgusting liquid at the bottom of the Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's, Love that. imagine that by, by magnitude of, I don't know, 10, 20, uh, and all that Ugh. stuff just trickling down in the groundwater, right? This is, this is insane. And this is not happening once, but this happens at a large scale. Nobody talks about it. Um, 
And we get a sense and, of that. If you camp out behind a garbage truck, you get a small sense yeah, how exactly. overpowering and awful that smell can be. Exactly. And these illegal landfills are also the main source, according to science, for um, ocean-bound plastic because, you know, these fields are unprotected. They're not covered by anything. And then you are in a country where the monsoon comes or where you have rainy season for, for five, six months. And plastic packaging is lightweight, right? So you have wind, you have rain. The stuff carries it away into drainage systems, into rivers, and from the rivers eventually in the oceans. And this is all because it's not managed properly, right? It's mismanaged waste in the end. And um, at the same time, and that is, again, difficult for, for for a lot of people growing up in Germany or in the U.S. to understand, um, the actual recycling industry works much better in, 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 for example, countries like India or Indonesia, right? Nothing that still has value is thrown away. And if I reflect on, for example, how my grandma behaved, how, you know, she went through Second World War, she knew what it means to not live in abundance like we do. Um, she would keep the, the gift wrappers at home and kind of iron them out and use them again because this generation was just not used to throwing stuff away that is still good. And the same thing applies to, <clears throat> to a lot of the more developing countries, you know, where GDP is not that high. And um, anything that still has a value will be collected and will be um, sold. Um, and that was really empowering for me to see, right? The secondary raw material market, or in general, the secondary markets in, in, in India are insane. You can sometimes drive long streets for 500, 600 meters, and people left and right will just sell old tires or old, um, uh, what do you call that? The, the gear shift parts. Oh, transmission cars. from cars. Yeah, exactly. The, the transmissions. Everything that still kind of works, they find a buyer for that. And the same thing applies for a lot of, a lot of waste, right? Water bottles, paper cardboard, um, <clears throat> shampoo bottles, all these things where there's a recycling industry behind that will be collected and, and resold. And looking at these two things, I was like, huh, what, what would happen if we can give this non-recyclable stuff, even if it's just an artificial value as well? So we started talking to the people on the ground and said, look, um, <clears throat> I realized that you collect certain material would you collect other material for me as well if I would pay you for that? Obviously, the, the unsurprising answer was, yes, yeah, sure, um, we will do that. And um, So we started doing that. And at some point, we had the first ton of non-recyclable plastic collected. And, you know, then you stand there and it's like, huh, what, what am I supposed to do with that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, you've collected it, but you're like, okay, you still have the same problem. Yeah, like you genius. Yeah. <laughs> Great business models. You've done it. Here's a bunch of non. You're now poor, and you have a lot of garbage. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. a win-win. <laughs> so that's roughly how it went down. Um, obviously, we we did think of a solution a bit before that. Um, that was still not profitable. So the. You know, the thing that you need to ask yourself, okay, if this material can't be recycled, what am I supposed to do with it? And then suddenly your options become extremely limited. 
Um, and this really depends from country to country. And in the U.S., for example, you, you do a lot of landfilling in the, in the U.S., but at least it's managed, right? Um, Germany, however, we have a zero landfill policy. By law, you're not allowed to put anything on landfills, but Germany has 80 waste to energy plants. That means we incinerate waste for the energetic value of it, which, quite frankly, is also not amazing. I'm, I'm not supporting that per se, right? Interesting. Because um, what you do is you build these power plants and they're expensive. They're like 100 million euro. Um, so you create lock-in factors because these things need to be fed. They are subsidized by the state. Um, there's no incentive whatsoever to reduce um, or to make a more circular economy happening with that because you need to... Because they have to feed, to feed the beast. Otherwise... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You wasted all uh, that money for nothing. Yeah, that's a very negative yeah. cycle. And, and then at the same time, right, you, you look at a country like like india um and there are a few waste incinerators there but they also never really took off there, there are a few ones that are operational um but the problem is if you don't sort your waste in recyclable and and uh, sorry in, in dry waste and in um biological waste for example or um uh, compostables you get a, an extremely moist waste stream with very low energetic value. That means the incinerator does not really produce a lot of energy. So it's not a working business case either. And the other, the other thing that you can do is you can partner up with the cement industry, which in the end um, was the way that we took. The cement industry has um, a huge appetite for energy. They, to produce cement, I didn't know that in the beginning, you need to melt stone in the end. You're, you're melting limestone and you need 1,200 to 1,400 degrees for that. And the energy today mainly comes from, from coal. The cement industry is one of the most carbon intensive industries out I there. I think I heard that recently. It was a shock. Yeah, it's a horrible industry. Yeah. And that, that does not only come from, from the energy need, but also from the fact that the actual chemical reaction of producing cement um, emits a lot of carbon at the same time they are they are a bit in the dead end as well because these huge energy needs can't be fed through solar power for example right it's like it, it just doesn't work there's very few renewable sources that they can fall back to um hydrogen is not there yet especially not um not in a sustainable way um so they are relying on, on fossil fuels and um in europe again they are one of the biggest waste sinks not necessarily for for all types of waste but specifically for toxic wastes like solvents paint these kind of things oil sludge um sewage sludge um certain types of plastic for sure um hospital waste all this covid stuff you know with the um <laughs> or yeah, this stuff is, is destroyed in the end in the in the cement industry because they incinerate at extremely high temperatures. It's a quite a clean combustion, um, and high temperatures. You know that from burning down a bonfire, if, if the the wood is moist, you have a lot of smoke going up. Yes. If it's dry wood, you have a nice hot burning fire. And the same thing applies in the end. Oversimplified in the cement industry as well. If you burn at high temperatures, you have a very clean combustion. There's an alkaline atmosphere within the kiln. That means um, a lot of the toxins and dioxins are, are destroyed 
um, long residue time, there's no ashes left behind and the ashes that are there from minerals, they are recycled into the cement. Um, <clears throat> and heavy metals aren't escaping this process, like you said, things aren't coming out that are leaching into the ground, it's all self-contained? Yeah. Cool. And, but, but, and this is super important to me, I'm not saying that this is a sustainable way of, of operation, of, of, of working, but it is a bridge technology. It, it is better than sending it to one of those unmanaged landfills. There are, we, to this date, did not come across a properly managed landfill with groundwater um, security, with covering it up to capture um, the methane, which is a much more potent um, greenhouse gas right, than, than carbon, for example. And this is why we, we are kind of also in the dead end and need to work with the cement industry. At the same time, plastic has a higher energetic value than than coal, than, than the lignite that is currently used. So overall, we do reduce the carbon emissions by up to 25%, but plastic is obviously still a fossil-based material, right? So it's this is why I'm saying this is not a perfect solution either. Right. Ideally, we're getting rid of that material, but you know, this is then the system where, where I was saying earlier, it, it is complex. There's no simple simple answer to right. that. I'm just saying like, no more packaging. We just know plastic. that this is better than throwing it in the ocean untouched yeah, exactly. or burning it with heavy metals coming down. Yeah. That is uh, a fascinating thing. So at the core of the idea, you pay people in these countries to sort and find this material, and then you take that, collect that material, and then you sell that to the cement industry who burns it in their incinerators. No, we, we, yeah, um, we are not paid by the cement industry. They either take it off from us for free, or in some cases we have to pay a gate fee. Um, and... Um, so we are still making loss end-to-end, right? It's like collection, sorting, um, disposal, all cost money. Um, so we are applying the polluter pays principle and we go back to brands and say, look, we know that you can't just get rid of your packaging, but at least you can take responsibility for whatever is out there. Um, and it's in the end quite similar to what we're doing with, with carbon credits, um, but applied to plastic. And <clears throat> I think... The important thing to note here is that this is what we're doing today, but this is not where we want to take the company long term, right? Mm-hmm. It's like we do not intend, and we have that in all our contracts and in our charter, we do not intend to become the energy delivery company for the cement industry. We actually have it in our charter that uh, cement and oil and gas cannot ever invest in cleanup um, because we don't want to become the greenwashing vehicle of the oil and gas industry or um, right. the, the energy delivery company for the cement industry, right? Be acquired for strategic purposes on, on that end. Right, what just to make somebody look good or feel good. Yeah. Like, see, we don't exactly. have to worry about it. We got these guys. Yeah. <laughs> and Problem um, solved. <laughs> exactly. What what my idea is, what, what I want the world to look like if we zoom out or if we go into the year 2032 um, is that Every household along the coastlines in, in the global south, as a rough geography, is connected to a functioning waste management system. Um, that means that someone is coming on a weekly or bi-weekly basis, picks up your dry waste, brings it to a sorting station where the waste streams are segregated in, into homogeneous waste streams that can be recycled as much as possible. And whatever cannot be recycled is taken care of in a responsible way, right? There, there are 
technologies on the horizon that people are working on, like chemical recycling, which has a lot of criticism connected to it as well. In some cases, rightfully so. In other cases, it's a bit difficult to understand the criticism. Um, but the thing in, in waste management, in the end, what it comes down to is you need to create a big and ideally homogeneous and quality waste stream. Because with that, somebody else can do something. Mm -hmm. Somebody can work with it, right? But if you just have one extremely heterogeneous waste stream with everything inside it, nobody can deal with it. Mm -hmm. So we need to ask ourselves, how do we get to, to a world where waste is ideally pre-sorted on the household level, delivered to a place where they can increase the quality of the waste stream, then recycle it, and at the same time, make the economics of that work. And this is the big challenge that we're, that we're working on here. And we're currently at the first step where we're kind of fixing the funding gap of even paying for these operations. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's not that we're paying people to roam around landfills and pick out <laughs> tiny pieces of packaging. Right. But we are, um, over the past year, we've connected 25,000 households to, or waste outlets like small shops, like kiosks or whatever, um, to a functioning waste management system that this stuff does not end up on my friend's backyard, mm -hmm. um, but that it goes in a managed way, like we know it from, from Germany or also from the US, right. where again, by the way, our system is not perfect. I've, uh, it's, it's basically impossible to build a perfect system in an imperfect world. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And we've always been taught here and also in Europe that you separate what's the recycling from the main one. Now, composting is something that some people do. Very few people do that in practice, I think. But at best, most households have two streams. They have their recycling and they have their waste. Do you think that that is an effective way to separate? Earlier, you mentioned that the wetness of the trash might have... Would it make more sense just to have dry and wet versus recycling and garbage? Or do you think the way it's currently structured does make sense? Um, it depends a lot on on where you're located and what the infrastructure is like today. Um, recyclability depends a lot also on, on context and on geogra uh, geographic context, right? On an island somewhere in the middle of the Pacific where you have no recycling um, industry at all, nothing is going to be recyclable, right? Because the economics just break. Shipping... Uh, a bale of plastic back to the mainland to be recycled there, the economics will never work. Um, you need to subsidize. And you're burning fuel. You know my answer uh, in that solution. What do you do if you're on an island? Yeah, exactly. You just burn you it need, all. <laughs> just burn it all. <laughs> yeah. You need capital input through yeah. some sort of subsidy, right. be it in the form of plastic credits or extended producer responsibility or tax or whatever to make these systems work. Um because waste management itself with the material input that we see today is not a profitable business case mm -hmm. nowhere but coming back to your question um i do believe that sorting into dry and um and wet waste is a very crucial first step if the um infrastructure is there sorting into residue and recyclables and organic waste makes a lot of sense. Um, and then at the same time, right, 
the consumer is also tired of it. They they are a tired of the work <laughs> that they have to put into, even though they are part of the problem. But I I can understand that. And then second of all, you know, you, people overpromise on on this recycling thing. You're told as a consumer in the US, whatever you put in the blue bin will be recycled. And suddenly NPR comes out with the yeah. with a documentary and other investigative journalists that tell you clearly no this stuff is not being recycled there's also a lot of it goes to landfill right and, and this is again because the economics of the market break somewhere and this is where people get tired this is where people get tired from being lied at and then they say like you know what everything goes into whatever bin i don't care i'm gonna do whatever i want and i i i feel empathy for that right i i will i will do the same thing if I wouldn't be so deep in the industry and would know that believe what's the challenges point. on all sides, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's not easy. But I, I think that the minimum thing that we can agree on is do not lie. Just do not lie about it and be transparent about, about your actions. And this is also why we're not making a big fuss about having to work with the cement industry. You know, there's another, another case, I don't want to name them right now, that recently popped up with a big promise, everything we do is going into recycling. You can send us whatever you want. It's going to be recycled. And suddenly this stuff appears at a cement plant in Bulgaria. And it's like, what? It's like, okay. I don't want to be lied at as a consumer. Right. Just say the process about no. cement. <laughs> yeah. Explain yeah. why that is a stopgap solution, perhaps. No. Until you have something better. So you've obviously at this point raised several million euros and funding through a variety of rounds. I think I saw a funding round in the summer of last year. I don't know if there's been more since then. So you've got people who are interested in helping you solve this problem yeah. on the one hand. And on the other hand, you're approaching big companies and you're saying, hey, do you want to offset some of the harm that you've been doing by paying for us to take care of this for you and give them essentially not carbon credits, but plastic credits? How, what do you call that? That's yeah, that's it, currently the model that you have. It's it's plastic credits, yeah, exactly. Right. And <clears throat> they, I and I hope this is understood now by by everyone listening. It's not to maintain the status quo of producing this plastic stream that that is there, um, but it is to build up functioning waste management solutions. It's there to build up collection systems that catch all types of, of material and by that makes the entire process a lot more effective to also be able to loop back material into, into circulation, right? Because again, if we, if we zoom out a step and look at it from a systemic perspective, if you would now tomorrow open a waste management company and you collect a ton of, of say plastic, right? 20% of that is, water bottles and you can sell them off 80 percent is waste you have no intention to do anything with it what do you do as a business in a, cap a capitalistic world you optimize your entire process of collecting more of that 20 percent because this is where you're going to get the money from right the 80 percent you don't even want you leave it you don't want to touch it now um somebody comes in and says look ross i'm going to give you 200 euro per ton of plastic that you collect um, this is your plastic credit and um, just prove me that you collect plastic. 
what would you do as a business owner? You still focus on this 20% of water bottles that you that you can get, but you charge another or you get another 200 euro on that, have very profitable business, but you still don't want to touch the, the 80% that is not recyclable, right? Yes. And this is where we intentionally set the incentive and say, look, if we raise money for plastic credits, we're only going to give money for these 80% because suddenly the entire ton increased in value and that means you can run much smoother operations. That also means that you're taking a bit of the price pressure away from the recyclable yep. stuff so that this can compete yeah. on, on a virgin material price. So there's a lot of explanation needed why the system is required, why, why it makes sense. People need to dive deep. And um, this is why I'm very happy that you give me the space to, yeah, to talk about it. I'm very happy too. And I, I love thinking about the future, so we're going to switch gears in just a second. But yes. you threw out the year 2032 as just a future year. So if everything goes according to plan, what is your company, what are you doing in 2032? Yeah. <clears throat> um, I will still be with Cleanup, definitely. Uh, this is, for me, very fulfilling work. And Cleanup will will have turned into almost a franchise system for, for waste management that delivers out-of-the-box solutions for waste management that can be upgraded as material changes. Local entrepreneurs can claim one clean hub and uh, start working, create jobs, and keep material in, in circulation, hopefully with a lot less non-recyclable material in circulation, but we will see clusters of small waste management companies that together um, root back or bring back material into circulation. We will, we will not work that much with non-recyclable plastic anymore, but become much more of, a, of an interface between waste generators and waste recyclers. Um, that's, that's very cool. Well, then there's a, there's a part two of that question, which is, I think that's a great answer. So I don't think you're going to go back to fleet management in 10 years. <laughs> I think you're personally... Um, your day-to-day, -day, how motivated are you? How happy are you personally day-to-day -day doing what you're doing now? Yeah. It depends on the, on what I have in my calendar. I love everything waste-related. I love everything that is impact-related. I love everything that is, um, really project-related and, and also that is related to our product. Um, so these are the, the days when I get up and I was like, yes, nice. I don't know. I, I get to talk to, to um, an entrepreneur in Nigeria. I get to talk to an entrepreneur in India. A lot of energy, a lot of changing things, right? Actually doing things. And the, <clears throat> the days I like less are those that are or have to do a lot with admin work, <laughs> with kind of the, the stuff that you have to do when you build a company. Um, this is why I get... A bit less passionate about but you know we have a we have a slack channel <clears throat> called hub events which is whenever something happens on the app we we get a notification in there and in the beginning it was like two notifications a week and now we had 70 a day 80 a day where there's constant noise where, where you can really see okay what you're doing here has an impact and this is what's was really keeping me going but was really promising and seeing whenever a new customer signs up, right? It's like, okay, the system, the, the, this kind of grassroots movement is, is gaining strength. We're, we're going places. And um, 
really for me, this is such a clear path to a solution that even if you have a shitty day, you still get up the next one and know say, okay, what we're doing is the right way. This is what needs to be done. Um, and this is extremely fulfilling. I love that. That is so cool. So many people need to take note of that right there. When you feel that you've come alive through this process. How cool is that? So in a general sense, and I have been guilty of this in the past, I think a reasonably intelligent person can look at the world and it's very easy to say, and I'm going to drop a very big word here and say, we're fucked. (laughs) It's very easy to look at the world and think it's hopeless or that there's no possible good outcome. We're too far down the road. How do you think an individual can turn their own attitude from we're fucked to I'm going to work on something that will help? Um, Actually, one of my favorite interviews, and I can send you the link, maybe you can put it in the show notes, Sure. uh, was uh, Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia in, in Fast Company. And I don't want to misquote him, but the thing that he said was along the lines of, um, the the best cure for pessimism or for for depression is action. And I think this is extremely valuable. And he he also says in the same interview, look, nothing that we do as mankind is sustainable. We are always extracting more than than we're giving back. As long as you're not regenerative, um, you are not sustainable. And that is, on the one hand, can be quite depressing. On the other hand, for me, that was super empowering because it meant... I am in a, in a given situation and it's going to be an uphill battle. You will always need to, to continue growing, but it takes out this feeling of something has to be perfect to work, right? It's the, and this sounds so stupid in the end, but the, um, the way is, or the, uh, there's a saying in German, I don't know how to translate that literally into English, but you can um, say it the, in German, German and we'll figure it out later if you like. Yeah, um, Weg ist das Ziel. Um, so if I translate, kind of the, the journey is the goal, the, the path is the goal. Right. Whatever it's, the, you will never reach perfection. And um, once I realized that, it puts you into a really nice position because you can say, whatever I'm going to do from here on forward, it's going to make things at least slightly better. Um, you don't have to be perfect, but get get to work. But get to work. That's funny. I came across a quote. Gosh, I wish I remembered who it was from, from an author. I'll try to track it down. But we live in a world where we all want immediate results. I post a photo on Instagram. I want 2,000 likes. I need immediate results or I feel bad. And the quote was something like, don't focus on immediate results. Focus on immediate alignment with your core values. Uh, Which is exactly what you've described. I can't guarantee that talking to you will produce any kind of positive effect. You can't guarantee that you'll change the waste industry. But what you can guarantee is that you are living a life much more in alignment with your core values as a human being. And it sounds to me like you're getting enormous satisfaction from that process. The vegister <laughs> something like that. <laughs> it's like it's 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 true. And at the same time, you know, I, I'm personally listening to a lot of podcasts with entrepreneurs and with like people who who, who claim to be successful or where, where other people claim them to be successful. And I always wonder is like, are you really that happy 
the, the way you come across here. And I think, you know, I would, I would never say about myself that I am successful. The future has to, to, to prove that this is the case. Obviously, we reached certain milestones, but that does not mean that we will have success neither as a company nor as an individual. Um, but th there are shit days and entrepreneurship can be gruesome and um, it's not all good. It's not all nice. Um, you know, everyone, I think, has these days where where you're not happy, where you're not aligned with your with your core values. But Absolutely. those days when you truly are, those days when you really do what you like to do, they're really, really nice days, I would say. Well, that's so fabulous. Thank you very much for sharing your story. We've reached the end of our time. I want to, as always, give you the last word here. So please let the audience know whatever you want, what they can do to support you, how they can help, where they can find you. So I give you the floor here to wrap this episode up. So whatever you want to say. Yeah. Um, I think the, the, the last statement goes back to what I said in the beginning and repeated throughout. <clears throat> if you're unhappy with the situation, act. It doesn't really matter if it's the climate, if it's the environment, if it's a personal life, but take action. I can Live think of take action. I can think of no better way to wrap it up than that. Thank you so much for sitting with me. It has been an absolute pleasure. I congratulate yes. you for taking action. Um, it's very thrilling for me to see people like you doing what you're doing. So keep on rocking. And again, thank you for sitting with me. It's been a pleasure, Joel. Thank you so much. And with that, the podcast is over. Oh.